And now, Canada Hoops, hosted by Maddie Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Canada Hoops. It's your boy, Matty. As always, we appreciate the support. Continue to download us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Like us, share us, retweet us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our guest today needs no introduction, but you know how it is on Canada Hoops. We do it anyway. All right, everybody. I'm really excited to welcome this man to Canada Hoops. He won't say it, so we'll say it for him. He is, without a doubt, a true legend in Canadian basketball. Representing Malton is a former Westwood Wildcat, Virginia Commonwealth University Ram, a member of the iconic 2000 Sydney Olympics team for Canada basketball. He has been a mainstay in homes across Canada as an analyst on NBA TV Canada and Raptors Sportsnet covering the Toronto Raptors. He is Sherman Hamilton. Sherm, how you doing, man? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. This is, uh, I feel really privileged. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, grateful that you can make the time to do this. Um, Sherm, I'd like to ask everybody when we get going, you know, how, how have you and your family managed the pandemic and then hopefully everyone's managed to stay safe and stay healthy? Yeah, it, it's been, you know, difficult, Mike. For everybody else, it's it's been challenging at times. Uh, I mean, gratefully, everybody around me is healthy, has not been directly impacted by COVID. So I'm very, very grateful for that and, and understanding that things could always be worse, you know. So just keep on plugging away and, and you know, keep on trying to stay positive and trying to stay with that upbeat spirit because there's a lot of downtime now. And, uh, you know, just be grateful. I mean, if anything, this has taught me that I need to be grateful about the things and the people that are in my life. Uh, I'm blessed, and then I just, I just have to keep on acting and, and understanding that that that's the way that that it's going to be for now. And and I, with the people around me and and all of us combining together to to build and stay strong, we're going to get through this. So uh, we just have to stick together. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, a lot of people have used this time to reconnect with family and you know appreciate what life's all about and you know give thanks for those those little things that we have no doubt um sherm just in terms of the the media side and your role you know with um covering the raptors nba tv and and roger sportsman how challenging has it been you know to cover the team and, and do the analysis from a distance for you all uh it's been different for sure um, there has been challenges. Um, you know, there's a disconnectedness when you're not around the team because, as you know, we traveled with the team, you know, so the ability to be around them and just have those conversations, whether it be at the arena, at the hotel, you know, you might be in a restaurant and see a player or a coach and you just chit-chat for a bit. Just that constant engagement that is possible from being on the road with the team it's, it's very, you feel disconnected because it was so much and it's gone to zero. I haven't seen the team since the league shut down initially. 
So I haven't even been around the team at all. So yeah. it's it's been very different. Uh, in terms of broadcasting, you know, there's it's a bit of a static environment. There's nothing in terms of energy that you can pick up from the arena or from fans or even from the play on the floor. You're looking at it on a monitor, just like everybody else is looking at it on their TV. Right. We have the luxury of getting different replays and different angles and all that, but we're still watching it off of a screen and basically uh, telling the story that way. So that's that's not the the way we're used to doing it. But you know, overall, the, the ability to still do what I love to do, you know, the ability to stay close to the game and and to still work. I mean, a lot of people are struggling with employment, and and I can't complain about the hurdles that I have to jump to get my job done because it could be worse. And uh, you just adapt and adjust. And I think that's kind of the mantra that we all have to, to, to believe in. It's going to change. It's going to evolve. And we have to be able to adapt and adjust. And that's what we've had to do with our broadcasting team. Yeah, I think it's been interesting from a, a, a standpoint of just tuning in every night and seeing you all cover the game and provide the game because it's, it's just a different look, obviously, and it's been cool to see, um, you know, Matt and Leo in the little makeshift uh, studio and just you get maybe a little bit more of an insight to you all as a broadcast team. So it's been kind of been cool that way for sure for us. Um, well, that's great. Yeah, no. And then obviously the Raptors are dealing with a little bit of a COVID protocol situation themselves. Couldn't uh, get the game going yesterday against Chicago. Um, do you have any kind of information on that or are you guys in limbo like the rest of us? Yeah, we're just in limbo and, uh, the, you know, due to protocol, they, they also keep it in house. Uh, they don't want right. to put too much information out there that's unnecessary. So, you know, on the outside looking in like everybody else, we just hope everybody is healthy and as safe as they can be. And hopefully those impacted will, not suffer too much and get back to doing what they love to do. Because at the end of the day, yes, we love basketball and, and, you know, people love the Raptors, but they're people and they have families and, and, you know, their health is just like our health. When their health isn't good, life isn't good, just like us. So we want them to be healthy and safe and, and hopefully they get back to playing the game and we get back to calling the game and, and we just move forward. It's, it's, it's one of those things that the Raptors are very fortunate that it's taken this long to impact them, but at some point, you just figure everybody in the league is going to go through some form or shape of this. And unfortunately for the Raptors, their number was called. Yeah, like you said, uh, let's hope that everyone can come out of it and, and stay healthy and uh, get better and be safe. Uh, that's most important before we get any games going. Sherm, um, let's get into your career and your journey, man. Uh, how did How did basketball get introduced to you? Did you dabble in other sports as well or? Was basketball always kind of right in the in the forefront for you? Actually, I played every other sport and I picked up basketball, probably the latest of all the sports I played. I just loved to play. Like you you name the game, anything to be outside and playing, I would do it. So, yeah. you know, I started out obviously with soccer and hockey and uh, actually loved hockey and, and hockey was my thing and just couldn't afford it. It just wasn't structured for my family and families like mine to be able to afford that. Right. So hockey kind of fell off to the side. I stayed with soccer, played volleyball. Actually, in high school, I played volleyball, table tennis, badminton, football, soccer. Um, I did track. Uh, I did four by one. I did high jump and long jump. 
uh, I did almost everything, and I played obviously basketball as well. But I, I picked up basketball probably it was grade six, so I was about ten, eleven years old. Yeah. But uh, it, it was just happenstance, you know. They rolled a rim outside of my middle school, and everyone was playing, and they needed a player, and they said, "Hey, come play." And I started to play, and that's kind of where it started for me. I fell in love with the game at that point, and you know, I didn't just focus in on basketball at that point. I still played all the other sports because I just loved sports. But uh, basketball definitely had a special place when it came to my friends, the group of people I hung around. We all loved basketball. And it was just a different feel playing the game of basketball than all the other sports. So I got introduced. When you look at it now, when kids start to play basketball, they start getting trained at four and five. And, you know, yeah. they get individual workouts at seven and eight and all that stuff. And it's like, I started at 11 years old and I just, just, I just had a love affair with the game from then. Do you think, um, cause I had this conversation a little bit with Jesse Young on his episode and it was, we got into the idea that with the way the game is so specialized in terms of training and, and the kids getting started young and only playing that one sport, do you feel like they're lacking in a lot of free play when they're out on the playgrounds and it's just it's more of something that they're just doing their friends to stay busy and now they've it's gone the other way where they have to be so specialized in their training i think something is lost when you don't freelance it so to speak like you say go out and play with your friends and maybe some people you don't know and you got to adjust on the court off the court you know what i mean you have to figure out and navigate ways to still be successful both individually and then collectively as a team because you know when we played on the courts outside it was king of the court so if you won you stayed on if you lost you were sitting for a while so the goal was to win as much as you could and you had to make sacrifices you had to dominate sometimes sometimes your role was defensive sometimes it was scoring like you had to really play whatever was necessary for you to win so i think you lose that then also just the that level of competition that there is when you're playing on the playground. There's no whistles. There's no one that's going to bail you out. You've got to play. And, right. you know, there weren't those situations where you could just call a soft foul. You had to get fouled. And then there was still an argument when you got fouled. So yeah. you had to really build a tough skin and be able to, you know, stand up for yourself. So there's a lot of elements that aren't, I think, available when, when kids don't play that kind of basketball. Now, I don't think you need a steady dose of that, and that's got to be all you focus on. Right. But I do think there's a balance there between those individual workouts, and I call them air-conditioned workouts because, you know, you got a coach, you got a nice cozy gym to work out in, you have all the basketballs and everything you need. Then to be, quote-unquote, on the playground and having to work through all those issues and still figure out how to get better and how to win. And I just think that builds another level of mental toughness and I think your skill set gets stretched when you're playing in those environments where nobody's going to coddle you or take care of you or blow a whistle. You've got to figure out different ways to get it done. And I think that's a part of the growth as well. But the kids are amazing. They're, they're, I mean, the level of talent and athleticism is off the charts nowadays. And it's great that they're getting this individual training. I just think that if that little tangible piece of that freelance basketball was added to what they have today, whew, they would be off the charts that good. No, I agree. I mean, uh, the structuredness that kids have, I think it's, like you said, there's a balance maybe, but it's required to 
have these kids get uh, competition and get exposure. So it's it's a it's a tough line for sure. Sherm, as uh, your game develops and you know you identify yourself as a hooper, who did you look up to on the basketball court, and whose game did you really like? You know, I get asked this question a lot, and it's it's one of those things that the obvious answers when I was growing up, you know. There was the Magic Johnsons, there was the the Larry Birds, there were, you know, the, the Michael Jordans, all those guys. And and they were all look, they were all great basketball players, and I looked up to them and I watched them a lot and and really was marveled by what they did. But I had a different feel to my game. I was never the guy who was looking for spotlight. I just wanted to win. I wanted to be a part of the team, and I wanted to help people around me play well as well. So right. I had guys like Kevin Johnson, nice. I don't know if you remember him, played for the Phoenix Suns for a while. Definitely. And also uh, Joe Dumars, you know, ran shotgun with Isaiah Thomas during the bad boy years. Those are two guys that I really, really enjoyed watching. And actually, I modeled a lot of my game after those guys. Kevin Johnson was an athletic guard. He could score. He could get into the middle. He was quick with the handle. You know, he was explosive. I had some of that. And then I had a bit of that Joe Dumars calmness and consistency and and then defensively joe dumars was a nightmare you know what i mean so i like that aspect of it too so those two guys combined embodied the basketball player that i wanted to be in and that's kind of who i emulated my game after sure and that's really cool because everyone that i've asked you know um they've looked up to or or like different players for different reasons but nobody uh so far in canada hoops has mentioned those two guys so i think that's really cool man Nice, nice. Um, as I was getting ready for our conversation, you know, and making notes about you starting high school, your days at Westwood, um, I was blown away at how competitive, you know, the high school scene was in Ontario at that time. Because every city and province, if you will, loves to shed light on how tough certain eras were. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, you know, the high school circuit during your years were uh, super tough and uh can we just get into how how tough Ontario was at that time for you? Yeah, it was tough. It was uh, we had some really really good competitors, uh, basically in the city and you know the extended city. So when I was in high school, um, when you looked at Toronto back then, it was really the city of Toronto. You know, Scarborough was on the outside. I was out west. Uh, you know, it was really the city of Toronto and then surrounding areas. So the city got a lot of attention, but then there were all these players coming from outside of the city that were making noise. So the city had to start recognizing those players that were outside of the core that were playing great basketball. So, you know, when you think about it, uh, during my time, two of the three, well, three of the starters, myself included, played in the same era, in the same area as well in Toronto and the surrounding area. So there was a lot of competition. And and the great thing about when I was coming, I feel is that all the guys that were good, everyone that you heard of that was anything in the city and outside the city, we all played against each other in the summertime and summer tournaments. It was kind of a black circuit, but we played against and with each other all summer long. So it was one of those things where you did travel with an AAU team and go to the States and make your name. You made your name in the city. You played against the best players, some older, some younger, but you had to compete against them. And we we never had a chance to avoid 
the best players facing each other in the city at some point during the summer. So that was really cool. And it created a great basketball environment where some older players that went away to college or university, they come back and they play. The best high school players would play against each other. And I just thought that we had a basketball community that continued to develop each other because the competition was so stiff, especially in the summertime. So it was it was a great time for basketball. And I thought that that really helped in terms of developing my game to play against the best players that were around the city and being able to hold my own and, and, and show everybody that I was one of the top players as well. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I was going through names that were, were playing in the province at the time. Uh, you know, yourself, uh, Rowan Barrett, Greg Newton, Sean Swords, you know, Pete Garassi, you know, uh, those are guys on the Olympic team. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And then um, I just wanted to touch base on, uh, I did a little research uh, just with Malton and then just, um, you know, the, the history just out of that area. I mean, you go Bobby Allen and then you follow him up and down to Jerome Robinson. What, um, there must be a lot of pride, pride in that neighborhood for you guys. Oh, big pride. And, and Bobby Allen was the one who, kind of blazed the trail, you know, and right. it's interesting because Bobby went to my high school. He's a couple years older than me. So the high school I eventually went to, he went to that high school as well for two years. Then he transferred to the rival high school after that. He had a lot of success. And and Bobby, to me, to this day, I still say was the best scorer I'd ever seen play outside of the NBA. Wow. He, he was a point-per-minute guy. He scored effortlessly. He could score from three. He could score inside. He was athletic. He could pass. He could just do so many things. Phil Dixon was the best high school basketball I'd ever seen, period. But Bobby was the best scorer I had ever seen. And, and the great thing about it was I had access to Bobby. So in the summers when he came back from school, I could see him at the open runs, and we could sit and talk, and, and he would tell me things about you know what to expect because at that point I was trending towards getting a scholarship. So he was very, very free with the information and he was very supportive. And to this day, we're still very good friends. But, uh, you know, and then after me comes Jerome and, and Jerome, you know, having a chance to play with him on the national team. Now, it's interesting right. the, where we grew up in. The, it's a village called Malton. It's a very small area. Right. But all three of us played on the national team and all three. Well, I got to play with Bobby during his tail years at the national team. And then I got to play with Jerome as well on my tail years with the national team. So it's pretty interesting that that small little spot created three consecutive national team players to play at the highest level in Canada. And that just shows how good the competition and the basketball level was in that little village of Malta. Yeah, that's phenomenal stuff. I, uh, I loved looking that up and just seeing the history and the names. I just thought, um, you know, we had to do justice to to that community for sure. Appreciate Sherm, that. Yeah, no doubt. Sherm, uh, you mentioned looking at scholarships. So when you're coming out of Westwood, uh, what were your offers like? And, and, you know, what schools were you considering? So I didn't have that many offers. When I came out of high school, I had all the Canadian universities. Um, uh, but uh, I had uh, Colorado. I had Canisius. I had... Um, I want to think it was Rhode Island or something like that. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of, of schools coming at me. 
so I actually, people don't know this, but I actually ended up going to a Division II school called Florida Tech for one year. Okay. And I went there and uh, I had a great year, freshman of the year, you know, after about 14, 15 points a game, defensive player of the year type of thing, you know, second team all conference. Um, but uh, I didn't think that I was going to continue to improve because I think I did basically a little bit more than I did in high school and I was that successful. I felt like I wanted a bigger challenge and I felt like I was a D1 player, so I transferred. So I didn't have, to your question, a lot of schools in the States coming after me, but I did have all the Canadian universities coming after me. And uh, I ended up at Florida Tech in, in, in a Division II program, which was good, but wasn't where I ultimately wanted to end up. And so um, when you do do the transfer, uh, what about VCU? What what made that the spot to go to? So I left the school and I didn't tell my mother. So I gave up a scholarship and she, if she had known, she probably would have killed me at that time because right. we weren't going to be able to afford for me to go to university. So this was my ticket. Right. And uh, so I just did it without telling her, came back in the summer. And uh, I just found a scholarship through a good friend of mine and a mentor, Simeon Mars, who you might know from Jamal McGlure's days. Yeah. Uh, he was his coach at East. You know who he is and everybody. And he's just a great guy and a great man. And he's done so much for kids like me when we needed help. Uh, so I'm very grateful to him. But he had a player named Mark Hunt who was going to uh, Eastern Commerce at the time, but was going to VCU that following fall. And uh, he got my tape and he, he sent my tape out to uh, VCU and they called me to come for a visit that weekend. I went for a visit. They got they signed me that weekend and the rest was history. So I really, really am grateful for Simeon Mars and his, uh, his willingness to just use his resources to help me out. But uh, yeah, I got to school and uh, I was able to get to a D1 program, a mid-major school and and I thought this is where I wanted to be. It had everything I wanted in terms of the challenges that I felt that I needed to face if I wanted to be the best player I could be. Well, it paid off for you. I mean, you're uh, a celebrated Ram. You know, when you look at VCU stuff uh, online, you guys go to the NCAA tournament in the 95-96 season. Uh, you average 11 points, a game second on the team in scoring, and then you led the team in assists and steals. Um, what, what are your best memories of, of being at VCU and being a Ram and playing under Coach Sonny Smith there? Well, I, that was it. That year, we had a phenomenal year. So my first year there, we were in the Metro Conference, right. and we played against teams like Tulane and, and Louisville and Southern Miss. And, you know, we had a rocky year. And the next year, we changed conferences to the Colonial Athletic Association. Right. And we almost ran the table that year. I mean, I think we lost one game to James Madison and uh, we had a great year and, and, you know, got to the turn, the conference tournament and had a close one against UNC Wilmington to, to win that tournament and, and get our birth to the NCAAs. But that whole year was just a whirlwind of, of energy. Like when you find you're in a situation where you have the right teammates, the right coach, the right attitude, you know, everything is trending in the right direction and you just know that nobody's going to go off the rails to mess it up. That's a pretty special feeling. And then to see it result in the wins and the, the birth into the tournament, it was a magical season. And uh, that to me was 
the most fun I had while at VCU playing basketball. And, and it was a great year and my teammates were great. And, you know, Sonny Smith, who used to coach Charles Barkley at Auburn, he was a great coach for me at that time in my basketball career. Uh, he softened up a bit. He was a bit rowdy and rambunctious in his younger days. Right. But when he got to me, he was a, towards the tail end of his coaching career. And, you know, he had a different approach. And it, it really helped me, you know, coming off of an injury to, to kind of acclimate myself to, to NCAA Division One basketball. And he was big in my success during my university years. Well, that's great. I mean, a lot of players, you know, say those are the the best years of their career. They just they learn and grow so much, and uh, you know, they have the best memory just being in college and that life, and you know, figuring out who you are, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah. What um, you know, you leave VCU and you you go pro. What were you looking at in terms of uh, pro deals overseas, or uh, you know, what were your options like? Uh, the options were tough. I mean, so out of VCU, I got drafted to the CBA, which is now the G League. Right. So, uh, you know, I ended up going to <laughs> North Dakota to okay. go and trial for a team yeah. in the CBA. And it was, as you know, it's cold, it's barren, there's not much out there. Right. Um, and I was actually playing against uh, Allen Iverson's old backcourt made at Georgetown and, and Victor Page. Okay. And he's who I was competing with for, for the job. And uh, I knew it. He had the name recognition. He went to a big program. You know, I was this guy from VCU who was trying to make the squad. <clears throat> and the coach actually told me, Mo McComb, the coach there, told me, you know, I want to keep you, but the owners want to put seats in the, fans in the seats, basically. And Victor Page had a bigger name. But he was a flight risk, so I ended up leaving there. And, uh, you know, at that point, you know, overseas was, was, was a different ball of wax. You had to – you really had to get your spot. There were only two foreign spots per team. Right. And, you know, now there's all kinds of passport ways that you can get around it. But back then it was two imports per team. And when you look at the size of the U.S. and the amount of U.S. basketball players that are vying for spots and then – you know, as a Canadian player trying to do the same thing, the odds are stacked against you. So right. it was basically get in where you could, get established, get game tape, and then build your career. So, you know, I just had to go that route. I didn't have, you know, the big agent pulling the strings and putting me in a situation to succeed. It was hustle, go on some tours with some teams, find a way to get some some game tape and send it to people and, and just kind of get your way over to Europe at some point, and that's what I had to do. There was no real clean path for me to just get there and just be on the team. And you played your last season overseas in Lithuania, correct? That's correct. And you had an unfortunate uh, injury. You know, you broke your foot in a, in a summer league run in Toronto in, in 2003, but um, that unfortunate break led to, you know, a surprising break for you, didn't it? It moved you forward into your career as an analyst. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, as basketball players and anybody who plays a sport for a living, you never want it to end. You're playing a game, you're traveling the world, you're getting paid to do it. Like, life is great at that point, you know what I mean? And unfortunately, we want to do it a little bit too long, you know, and we never really recognize when to shut it down. Well, my decision was made for me. 
And even when it was made for me, I still tried to fight it, still tried to get my ankle right. And it didn't work out. But to your point, you could tell that the timing was up for basketball, playing playing basketball in my career path. And you're right. I, I broke my ankle in August. I, I broke it two weeks before I was supposed to go back to Argentina. Okay. And uh, that really hurt. And, uh, you know, by November, I was working in broadcasting. Now, didn't expect it to happen. And the story, how I got it goes, I went to the studio you know, I was sitting there watching games and, you know, I'm just kind of talking. And during the games, we sit around and we talk with the producer and just discuss basketball. And I'd watch the post-game show, the pre-game show, watch the games and just kind of talk to people. And one day the producer said to me, did you bring a suit? And I was like, no. Nah. He's like, bring a suit next time. I'm like, okay. I come there in a suit and he puts me on camera. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and I sucked. I was brutal. Okay. I was brutal. <laughs> I mean, you know, but you, you start approaching this new opportunity the same way you approach your basketball career, you know, and you you start taking it all in. You're looking at the pregame, postgame production, like you said, and, you know, you start doing mentorship from people like Leo and Jack Armstrong and I'm sure Paul Jones, um, you know, and, the media side and broadcasting and analysis has allowed you to stay closely connected to the game you love, man. That's That's been a, an incredible ride for you uh, so far. Yeah, it's, it's been amazing. You know, and I still say this, even though I got to play basketball for a living, I'm still in the toy department of life talking yeah. about basketball for a living, right? right? So I'm very, very, very fortunate. But to your point, you know, when I talk to kids, I try to explain to them that Whatever you're doing, whatever sport, if it's music, if it's art, whatever you're doing and you're trying to get better at it and you sacrifice and you make those tough choices and you continue to grind, even when it doesn't work out, you figure out a way to, to navigate those negatives and turn them into positives. It translates to everything in your life, right? That ability to have that work ethic and determination and that resiliency, you're going to be successful whatever you choose to do. And that's the same thing. It's the same determination that had me in the gym for hours shooting jump shots or working on my handle when other my other friends were hanging out and doing what they wanted to do. That's the same thing I had to put into the broadcasting game because that's what I knew. That's how I knew success came. I worked hard and I got rewarded. So to your point, I would go around and I'd follow someone like Jack Armstrong and, and go sit at a studio with him. I would stay around NBA TV Canada studios and just be there all day, just finding out what people do so that the second something came or an opportunity to get on camera, I was available and I was there and I could get those reps in under my belt. So I say it's just like the jump shot. The more work I put into it, the better my jump shot became. Same thing with broadcasting. The more work I put into it was the better I became at broadcasting. Yeah, those are great points. And I think, uh, you know, the youth can take that and you know, whatever, like you, whatever their passion is, like you said, they can apply that work ethic and, you know, you know, good things will come to people that, that put that work in. I think that's a, a great point. Yeah. Sherm, uh, you know, this question, I asked this from two points of view and that's, you know, what were your thoughts and emotions? The Raptors win the cha NBA championship in 2019, you know, and it really captivated all of Canada uh, you know, with their championship run. And, 
you know, this question comes from two viewpoints. And one is, you know, the beloved 2000 Sydney Olympics team for Canada basketball, which you played on, of course, is often credited with starting a lot of basketball dreams in Canada. Uh, I was, I was hooked. I couldn't uh, get away from that. And then two, you know, the Vince Carter effect where so many youth took a hold of basketball because of Vince. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the game has really come full circle in Canada, uh, especially with the, the 2019 title for the Raptors. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Cause the basketball la- landscape has just been forever changed by that. Yeah. You know, people have, have said that about that 2000 Sydney team and I never felt it at the time. I mean, we were just, actually achieving our dreams you know what i mean that 12 right. guys would work very hard to get there and here we are at the olympics and uh you know you never really see the impact until years later and you hear conversations so to kind of be a part of starting this basketball craze above ground because underground you know this basketball has been big underground from way before i got into the game for sure when i got into the game people love basketball way before me so to get, give it a bit of a platform, and that's what Sydney did because we had the whole country that was interested in basketball watching and some peripheral people based on the connections they had to the people on the team. Right. And, and that was great, but what the Raptors did both in 95 and then in 2019 was give basketball the ultimate platform in Canada, both in Vancouver and Toronto to start, but as it continued in Toronto, the whole country adopted the Raptors. And then to see the Raptors actually win a championship, that's full circle. You know what I mean? Like, it's amazing that the game that we love, the game that we've been talking about all these years, finally get the respect it deserves and the platform it deserves. And it's interesting that now, you know, when we talk about the game of basketball, we we talk about it like right there with hockey. I mean, hockey is still going to be what it is, but right. when you talk about youth involvement, basketball and soccer superseded hockey on the grassroots level. So we're going to see a shift in our country about what sports are the most dominant in just a few years now, based on the the grassroots involvement in different sports. And I always thought that basketball and hockey could live beautifully together. I just thought that our country didn't want to do that. Right. And now with the Raptors winning it, I just think that the country is forced to do that. You look at the parade and the beautiful thing about the parade that the Raptors had, it was it had its moments that were, were tough. Right. But when you looked into the crowd at the parade, you saw Canada. You saw everybody that makes this beautiful country up. And that's what basketball does. It allows everybody to be involved. You know what I mean? And I think sports in general does that as well. But it's great to see basketball be the platform to really address that and say, hey, we're all in this game together. And for people like you, people like me who love the game of basketball, it was one of those, you know, those moments where you kind of nod and say, yeah, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the kind of respect our game deserves. And it's just a great feeling. And then to be a kid from the area, to see that championship in the area, unbelievable feeling. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much uh, else you can put that. I, it's just like, you know, you go from 2000 and then your squad in Sydney uh, and you go 20 years and the growth and the love and the passion, uh, it's just been incredible. And, uh, you know, I think people just um, 
were overjoyed and the basketball people in the country have just been, you know, time and time again, blown away at just how much growth we've seen. It's been special. Sherm, uh, on Canada Hoops, we like to talk Canada basketball and Canadian Hoopers and the national team and the program. Uh, this is special, this conversation. Like I said, you're the first player off that 2000 team to to come on Canada Hoops. We appreciate that, man. And, uh, you know, you played for the senior level um, both before and after the 2000 Olympics. You played alongside some some greats, Eli Pasquale, you know, rest in peace to Eli and and Rowan Barrett, Phil Dixon, Todd McCullough, and, of course, Steve Nash. Uh, you know, those years being part of the program, is it safe to say those are your best memory as a basketball player? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I know it sounds corny, and it, it's probably said a lot, maybe overstated, but in my mind, it can never be overstated. When you get to play with that jersey, and that Canadian flag symbol on your chest and the words Canada across your chest, it's special. Right. It's special. Not only from a, a personal standpoint, you know, you work hard to get there. and you got to try out and make the team to be one of the 12 best players considered at that time to represent your country. But it's also about, you know, you're representing your country. And, and that's a special thing. And I never took that for granted. And, um, yeah, it was it definitely was the best basketball in my life based on the amount of time. It was eight years that I played for the national team. Right. So there was a lot going on there from the losing to getting to places and then losing again and then getting, there's a lot of up and down there. And it was great because, you know, you develop lifelong bonds with people when you, you know, people look at the 2000 Olympics and, and, and see what a great accomplishment that was. But really in 1999, when we qualified for the Olympics, to me, that was a bigger hurdle because at that point, it was only two teams that qualified from the Tournament of the Americas, and one of them was going to be the U.S. So the rest of us were playing for one spot, right. and we beat the home country, Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico to get that spot. And to me, that was a huge accomplishment. And then that catapults us to the platform of – the Olympics, which was special in itself. So great times, great memories, you know, played in some tough situations, had some tough teammates, but uh, those group of guys, I mean, take them to war anytime on the court. I mean, we all suck now, but back then I'll definitely take them to war with them for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought up, you brought up the uh, qualifying game against uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, I rewatched the final game last night on YouTube against the U S and on the broadcast, you know, they're talking about your guys, uh, special win against Puerto Rico just to play in that final against the U S and you played a key role in that qualifying game. You dropped 19 points. You made nine out of 10 free throws in the last three minutes to secure the win. Um, you know, you, you touched on it, but just once you qualify and, because I remember watching that game and you all qualifying and just the joy and the excitement, knowing that next summer you're going to play in the Olympics. Did that that final game against the U.S., did it just feel like, okay, well, we got to play this, let's go compete, but now the work is done for, for next summer? Yeah, the work was done after that Puerto Rico game. I mean, right. we were all out all night. <laughs> yeah. no, we, no. we qualified, yeah, we qualified yeah. and – we got the job done. And, and, you know, you're playing against the U.S. You know, it, 
nobody's beating the U.S. You want to compete and do as well as you can, and hopefully you can beat them. But the reality was at that point of the tournament, the last game of the tournament, I mean, we were there for what we probably played eight, nine games in 12, 13 days. So right. you're pretty beat up. But we accomplished the goal, and we enjoyed accomplishing the goal that night. And the next day, it was a lot of fumes that people were playing on, but right. we had to show up and, and put 12 people on the floor. So, But, uh, yeah, that, that U.S. game. Now, we had played the U.S. before, so we knew right. what it was like. Right. But uh, that game really didn't mean as much to us, although Todd McCullough had a good showing in that game. He did. And uh, that helped his NBA career, too. So right. good for him. But uh, overall, that tournament was pretty much done once we qualified against Puerto Rico. Well, I've said it many times, uh, you know, the 2000 uh, Olympic team, Sherm, was uh, a special group. Uh, I have, you know, personal memories with that team. We, uh, I was playing in a tournament in Vancouver, and you guys were playing an exhibition game uh, that summer just before you went off to Sydney against some Div 2 team. Uh, we were there for, I think, Nike Nationals, and we were there with all the other provinces, and we're 18-year-old kids, and that moment for me just just really put Canada basketball in my mind. Like, yeah, the NBA is cool and whatnot, but these are the guys I want to follow. These are the guys I want to support. I just thought, you know, to be able to play for your country and, you know, that group uh, was so special. You know, as you were in Sydney playing, uh, as a group, were you guys aware of how much support you were getting back home? And did you know how many people were following you all? Like, did you get a sense of that? It's interesting because the summer before in the qualification tournament, um, nobody showed our games until the last game against Puerto Rico, the second last right. game against Puerto Rico. Right. And and when we qualified, you know, people started talking about us. And when we got to the Olympics, you know, nobody was really thinking about that. We're trying to medal. So that's all we're focused on. And our head coach, Jay Triano, as you know, yeah. um, kind of had one of those talks with us and said, listen, before we start this tournament, just think about some people that have helped you along the way, people that, you know, gave you opportunities, you know, kind of gave you guidance, put those hours in with you in the gym, whatever it was, just make a note to a few of those people and let's send them off to those people before we get started. Just be grateful for what they provided for this opportunity for all of us. And it was a surreal moment. And Back then, you know, the internet wasn't that crazy where all these social media sites, there was, you had email, right. you know what I mean? Right. And, and Canada basketball was receiving tons of emails of support across the country. And uh, we had a center that we could go into as athletes and we could go, you know, get on a computer and we could see, you know, our emails and stuff. And your box was flooded. People were reaching out and random people you didn't know just cheering you on. And that's when we kind of understood, wow, we've got the basketball country captivated right now. They're locked in watching us. And, you know, they're talking about staying up till three, four in the morning to watch a game and all that stuff. And, and it was amazing. You didn't get overwhelmed by it, but you felt proud and you felt supported. And that's something as a Canadian basketball player that you didn't feel collectively. You felt it from pockets of basketball people, but there was a collective support system around that team across the country that was amazing to experience and uh that was something that really opened my eyes and, and really allowed me to 
to to understand how deep basketball goes because I'm from Ontario. I know what basketball is like in Ontario. I get it. But you never really know about the other provinces until you know. And then having traveled there and then seeing the support, it was, yeah, we're we're all really in the game together as a country. Yeah, it was, I mean, just a personal side. Like we would have practice. I was playing my first year in college. And we would have practice, you know, whatever, 7 p.m. kind of thing, do practice, go back to the dorm, get ready, you know, get some rest and then get up at three in the morning, you know, to watch you guys all hoop. And then we were dog tired and the coach was kind of, <laughs> coach was kind of kicking our butt because we were tired. But then you go to practice and you talk to the guys, oh, man, you watch the game. Like, you know, it was um, a time that I'll never forget just being a, a basketball uh, player at the time and then fan in the country. It was a special moment. Um, can we do a little game rundown of the tournament, Sherm? You, you start the first game in the round robin. Uh, you beat the host Australia, one hundred and one to ninety. What you know, you guys play that game, and I have no doubt you go into that thinking you can and, and will win. But you beat the host in the first game. Like, what's the mindset coming out of that game? Well, first of all, going into the game, you know, we felt like we were being screwed to play the host team right. first game of the Olympics. Right. They're trying to give us an L right away. That's the that's the attitude we had, and you know. We were 12 guys that were leaders. You know what I mean? We were 12 guys who were who were very aggressive and, and strong mentally, and and we didn't have any back done. And obviously, Steve Nash was the leader of our team, right. but he was being followed by some leaders on their own right. And and we got that attitude of, screw them. We're, we're not going out like that. They're not going to do that to us. Right. And it's interesting because in that game, I remember the first half, the guy I was covering, had 12 points, and the guy who Rowan was covering, Andrew Gaze, right. had 17 in the first half. Right. Australia was doing what they wanted. And I remember going into halftime, I was like, no, it, I, this can't happen right now. This, you work too hard to get to this point yeah. to not be able to produce. Right. And it's interesting because the second half, you know, Rowan switched on to my guy, I switched on to his guy, and we both shut them down. Wow. And Steve did what he did. And, you know, Steve was amazing at the tournament. And, you know, Mike Meeks, Peter Garacci, Greg Newton, all everybody just started to maybe it was the first game jitters. Maybe who knows? But that second half, we locked in and and we got the job done and we shut down their main guys. And then Steve just orchestrated the way he did beautifully. And we were able to just take control of the game. So it didn't start out great, but we had one of those come to Jesus moments in the locker room. And uh, we came out the other side and, and prepared to fight and got the job done. Well, I think that win set the tone. And then I think uh, that put a lot of people on notice, like, hey, Canada's here to play. We're ready to go. We, we're not backing down. And, um, you know, and, and Gaze ended up being the leading scorer in the tournament. So, I mean, that, that says a lot that you could, could shut him down or limit him in the second half. Well, he had 17 in the first half. Right. And then I switched on him and he had five points in the second half. There you so go. we were able, we had to cut him off because he's a prolific international scorer right. and we had to slow him down. So we, we got him under control and then everybody did what he did. So as you move through the tournament and then in the second game, you beat Angola. And I mean, let's, let's, let's state facts as to be expected, but uh, their game, you beat Spain and they're always a, a tough uh, basketball power. You know, as you're coming out of that third game, um, you know, as a group, you know, there were stories like you guys were just so locked in, 
you know, really doing your own thing and kind of staying away from the village and just mentally uh, getting ready for this, you know, this run. What, um, you know, what do you remember most about the group just being so tight and, and united? We were, we were very tight and united. And, you know, there were in the Olympic village, there's a lot of things you can do there, right? Cause they don't right. just want athletes to be bored. So, right. but we made a, a team decision that we're here for business. So, we're going to do what we need to do to stay focused. We ate together, right. you know, groups of us hung out together, you know what I mean? And, and everybody intermingled. We, we stayed really close knit and you could see other athletes and this is not a knock on them, but enjoying the life of the village, which, you know, could be your only time there. So I get it, but we just chose to do otherwise and just stay focused on the task at hand. So, you know, all of us would go eat together at the, the food pavilion come back we we had a, a basically a team house that we all stayed in okay uh steve nash was my roommate so we had a lot of those nights talking basketball with people in the room and just kind of wow. locking in on what we needed to do and uh we we were we understood i mean people don't know this but in 95 we missed going to the 96 olympics in atlanta by two games we had two shots to get there and we weren't able to do it so there's that starting core of us, Steve, Rowan, right. uh, Mike Meeks, uh, Peter Garacci, all of us right. that really missed an opportunity. And we weren't going to let this opportunity that we worked and waited four years to get a chance to go back to, to mess it up by not being focused. So we were pretty locked in. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you finish up the round robin, um, you lose to Russia, but then you beat uh, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia in that fifth game and it sets up the uh the tough uh game to france in the quarterfinal um you know that was i think collectively i mean you guys were there and you're playing but uh, the nation just uh you know they felt a loss alongside you guys um there's a picture and i'm sure you've seen it a lot but and after the loss there's a a photo of you uh with your arm around steve and you know, Steve's obviously emotional. I'm just, can you let us in a little bit on what, on what you were saying to Steve in that moment, Sherm? Uh, it's tough. You know, it's, it's, that was a situation where, you know, I've known Steve since he was 16 years old. We've been trying out against each other and playing with each other on different teams. So, you know, although we were competitors, we were teammates, we were brothers in, in war. And, you know, at that point, the only difference was, Steve is, is a guy who, as he plays, he plays with his heart out. You know what I mean? You see everything about Steve when he's playing the game. And when he hurts, you see everything about him as well. And he had been such a great leader for our team. I mean, when you talk about a guy who you'd want to, to lead you into battle, his name comes up for sure. I mean, on all levels. And he was broken at that moment. And, and he put everything into that game and he didn't have the greatest game. And you know, France made it difficult. I thought, you know, it was a difficult whistle against Steve as well. Agreed. And he was hurt. He was hurt. And, you know, I, that's my brother in that moment. And I had to, I felt like my brother needed somebody to let him know that he was still that guy. He was still amazing. He was still unbelievably, an unbelievable leader. And, and, uh, yeah, just putting my arm around him and cameras just happened to catch us walking off the court. Now just telling him like how much he meant to me and to the team and to the country. And, uh, you know, at that point, you know, you don't really hear it because he's so wrapped up, 
but he needed to know, even if he wasn't fully absorbing it, he needed to know that that's how I felt. And, and I was just trying to talk to him about how great he was and how much I appreciated him. And, uh, you know, he had his moment in front of the cameras. I had my moment like that behind the cameras because I got chosen for a urine test after the game and I just collapsed on the way. I mean, crying just flat out in the middle of the hall. Right. Couldn't be picked up. And uh, it took me a while. And uh, it was, I, I felt it. Like I was able to hold it together to get off the court. I got off the court and I just, I just melted. So we were all feeling it in that locker room. And that locker room was a lot of grown men crying at that point. And uh, it was tough. It was tough, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, let me just, you know, on behalf of the Canadian basketball fans that, you know, remember that team and, you know, everyone that's played on it, you know, we, we thank you for, you know, those moments and those memories. And I appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, those memories you just shared, Sherm. That means a lot, man. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, Sherm, reflecting back on your time with Canada basketball, you're able to look at it like, yeah, I furthered the game and the program in Canada and, you know, I, I, I made a difference and I left it better than when I started. Cause I, when Jesse Young joined me on Canada, who Jesse talked about joining the senior national team and being welcomed in by vets like you and Rowan, um, you know, do you feel like, you know, you've impacted the program? I, I want to say that I have. I mean, I, I don't really look at it in terms of if I've impacted it or not. I just feel like, I tried to do whatever I could to help, you know what I mean? And, and how people perceive that and how it's, how it's taken is, is up to them. I mean, if they feel that I've helped, great, because that was my goal. If they feel that I haven't, that's their opinion. But personally, you know, when, when you're on the tail end of your career and you see these young cats coming in and they're, you know, they're hungry, just like I was hungry when I was coming after the older guys on the national team when I was there, right. you know, you, the group of guys that were coming in were good guys. You know what I mean? They were, they worked hard. They had respect. They loved playing for the country. So it was easy to welcome them and, and whatever they needed in terms of mentorship or conversations or advice. Absolutely. And, and that's what we're supposed to do. You know, you got to leave the place better than when you walked into it. And, and hopefully, you know, that can be said about me with the, the generation and after me and, and Jesse, was one of those classy young guys, you know. He was a funny guy. Right. He loved to play. He was very, very talented. Right. But he just wanted to win, and he wanted to be a part of the team, and he did whatever it took, and he was humble. And he's he's a classic example. Jerome Robinson as well. These guys were, were great young men who were going to make their mark, and they did, and, and I tip my hat to them. So to know that these guys came after our, our group and, and – they had lived out their dream as well playing for Canada. It's It makes me proud. It makes me happy for them. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for the amount of people that have joined us on Canada Hoop so far. You know, and just going back, uh, you know, Leo and having him on in his time and talking about the program and, and going to yourself now. And um, I've had Carl English and, I mean, Javon Shepard. The, the list the errors go on and on and it's just been amazing to see, you know, the guys mention who they came in after and the vets they learned from and, and the love that, uh, you know, they all, all give each other. It's, it's, it's a special, uh, 
it's a special program, man. It really is. Oh, absolutely. It's 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 a very exclusive program. It's it's a special program, and you know, like I said, we all had the opportunity to wear Canada across our chests and that flag on our chest, and right. it's a feeling that a lot of people don't get to to experience, much less in our basketball community. So it's it's a very special and unique environment to be in. Right, Sherm. Do you get a sense of right now with the program and you know? our amazing talent that we have with the guys in the league and overseas. Um, you know, is there an overall buy-in right now you think for guys wanting to really try to play for Canada? I know it's not always possible and there's other commitments and it's well-documented, but you know, do you get a sense that the desire is there and, and the guys are ready to put Canada back up where it belongs as a, a basketball power? I, I want to say yes. I, I think we're seeing more, consistently guys are saying, I want to do it. I want to be back. I want to play for my country. I've always said this, you know, it's always, the proof is always in the pudding. You know, when the Jersey's on and they're playing for our country, we see the commitment. We don't question Corey Joseph's commitment because Corey Joseph always puts the Jersey on when he can. Tristan Thompson, same thing. You know, these are guys, Kelly Olenek. These are guys who have shown consistently how much they want to play for the country. There are other guys who have been sporadic here or there. Um, I'd like to see more consistency, but it's never a situation that I knock them because at the end of the day, they've got a lot on their plates now. You know what I mean? And contracts and health. And even now with COVID just puts another extremely thick layer on what they need to get done. So I've always said this. It's an honor to play for your country. Uh, I wish everyone would see it that way. Right. But I understand why other commitments and different parts of people's careers may impede them from doing that. And I think as a country, we should never shoot these players down when they don't play. I mean, they're talents. We want them involved as much as we can get them involved. And when they're not involved, the worst thing we can do as a country is shoot them down and and talk badly about them because that's not going to help them want to play. So I I respect every player's decision. I would like to see a more consistent commitment to playing for our country, but I I would not knock a player for doing what they have to do to make sure that they take care of themselves and their families. So uh, I think it's moving in the right direction. I, I do think we're seeing more players speak about playing for the program in a positive way. So I just want to see it happen more consistently. Agreed. I think that's uh, well put, Sherm. Uh, all right. I like to ask everybody when they come on the show uh, who their top five of all time for Canada basketball is. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's if, a big one. Yeah, I know. And I mean, we can we can throw a six man if we need another spot. So uh, I'm curious to top see who uh, the icon Sherman Hamilton puts in his top five here. Wow. Uh, if I was just to go by what I heard because I had never seen players before me play for Canada. So I'd never seen Leo. I'd never seen Jay play. I fortunately, as you spoke to, I got the chance to play alongside Eli way along in his career and bless his soul. He's passed since then. But uh, I mean, from what I know, um, Steve, obviously he's, the best player I think this country has ever seen. Right. I never played with Rick Fox, so I can't speak to that. I just know of his NBA career. Right. So I can't necessarily put him on that list. Um, 
That's tough. Top five. If I'm just to go with the names, it's going to be like Leo. It's going to be Jay. It's going to be Eli. It's going to be Steve. Right. Uh, and I don't know who that fifth player would be. Uh, wow. You stuck me on this one, man. Well, Canada basketball history. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, there's generations of amazing yeah. talent and, um, it is tough to. I know. think Jamal Murray is going to be one of those guys. Agreed. If he puts the jersey on consistently, he is definitely going to be one of those guys for sure. I mean that that young man is uh, he's something else. He's uh, oh. you know he's making a lot of Canadian basketball fans uh, very proud to say the least. Yeah, he's he's a different animal. I mean, we're talking about a guy who I feel this program needs because. He's an alpha dog of the alpha dogs. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's going to be the guy. Everything breaks down, get him the ball. He's going to make something happen. Yeah. Not necessarily score all the time. He's going to make the play. And I think he's the guy that the program really needs to wrap their arms around in a big way and make him feel anytime he's ready to consistently commit, they have his back. Because I think he's going to be the cornerstone. He's the kind of guy that can be the cornerstone of the the organization for a lot of years to come. Agreed. I mean, and I think if Jamal was playing consistently, like you said, potentially pull other guys with him as well, you know, on a consistent basis too. And then perhaps that ideal lineup that Canada basketball fans talk about might, might actually get on the court, but that, you know. That could be a topic for another day, you know. True. Yeah. Sherm, uh, listen, man, uh, we really appreciate you joining us on Canada Hoops. Uh, we want to thank you for everything you've done and and continue to do for Canadian basketball. You know, uh, you're such a, in my opinion, uh, an iconic person. Just, you know, you're still growing the game and uh, delivering it to everyone uh, on a nightly basis. You'll always be a friend of Canada Hoops. There, Sherm, much love to you, man. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. The more talk we have about our Canadian players and programs in our country, the better it is. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. And uh, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Well, we appreciate that, man. Uh, We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of Canada Hoops. I want to thank Sherman Hamilton for pulling up. I want to thank you for listening. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Continue to download us, share us, like us. Until next time, I'm your boy, Maddie. Thank you for listening to Canada Hoop.